Hello, I'm Kerwin, and this is Keith, and this is Father-Son Galaxy. Hello there. Our guest today is Halima Lucas, who is a highly accomplished filmmaker and producer with a diverse background in film, television, and digital media. She graduated from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and gained, a valuable, and gained valuable skills in producing, directing, and editing. Halima has experience working on various projects, including independent films, documentaries, television shows, and online content. She is also a talented writer and director, having produced several short films and documentaries. In 2017, Halima won the HBO Short Film Award at the American Black Film Festival for her film, Amelia's Closet. She is an active member of the entertainment industry community. Halima, welcome to Father Son Galaxy. How are you? I'm good, how are you? <laughs> Congratulations on the first season of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Thank you, thank you so right. much. I'm, I and the rest of the team are really thrilled to see it out in the world. It's, it's been uh, a years long journey, so it's exciting to see it out in the world and, and the response to it. Wonderful, we can't wait yeah. to hear more about you. Because this morning, me and Dad just, like, binge-watched the remaining episodes of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And we started taking notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really, <laughs> really, really you, good. Thoughts and response. How would you feel? Oh, my gosh, though. Yeah. The ending? Yeah. We don't want to give it away. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was a, a, a it was an oh, amazing it was series. Stellar. Yeah. Yeah. It was totally unexpected, the way uh, the last three episodes uh, took place and what happened, uh, but it was just truly amazing, truly amazing. Why are you bringing episode 14 into this? Yeah, all right. So, <laughs> so we're not, we won't discuss it too much. Uh, so we want to learn more about you. So we're looking forward to hearing about your your. Well, I guess career. it is tied. Yeah. Okay. You're right. You're right. All right. Can you tell us where you grew up and what fun memories you have of your childhood? Oh yeah. Um, so I am originally from Stockton, California, which is a city up in Northern California. And it's more, um, my memories of growing up in Stockton, I, I remember the more farmlandy agricultural um, parts of it. We always grew up like near a levee and things like that. And, um, and I come from a pretty big family. I'm second oldest of, uh, nine brothers and sisters and the youngest right now is uh just turned eight years old and so um yeah that's that's where i grew up and the things we would do for fun in a place that had at that time just open fields and and levees and things like that like we would catch lizards in our backyard and um <laughs> just kind of stuff like that um we had a really big backyard so things like we had like all kinds of fruit trees and, and we grew like peaches and vegetables and stuff like that. And I remember one year we had a really productive um, cabbage plant and my dad was determined like we're not getting anything else until we eat all of this cabbage. And that was probably the worst couple of weeks of my childhood maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in, I think, you know, in a hometown that is just very near and dear to me. I love visiting there. That's where most of my family still is. Um, 
And I just think having so many memories, especially with my siblings growing up with them, um, that's what I think of when I think of growing up. So. What did you know you wanted to become a filmmaker? Oh, wow. Um, it took me a long time to get to that realization because when I was growing up, I was always into creative stuff. Like I loved drawing. I loved writing poems, things like that. I loved writing. Um, but there wasn't really anyone around me who was an, an artist or in the, the creative space in that, in that kind of way. So I never thought even just doing something in the arts was a, I never saw it as something to aspire career wise. And so when I went to college, which is was also in my hometown, uh, University of the Pacific, um, when I went there, I was really into sociology. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a PhD in sociology and, and become a professor because I wanted to share what I was learning and ideas and the connections um, I was making. I wanted to share that with other people. And so that's the road I was on. And then one summer, being a summer RA, I got the log into someone's Netflix account, which was back when Netflix was not what it was now, <laughs> um, getting DVDs and things like that. And so I got the log into their Netflix account and I was binging all kinds of stuff. I was binging Avatar, I was binging um, uh, miniseries and things like that, um, indie rom-coms. And there was this show called The Tudors, if anyone remembers that show. But there was one episode of The Tudors, they had this character named Cromwell who was terrible. And I was like, oh, we need to get rid of this guy. Like, we, we need to kill him off like now, he's just terrible. And so <laughs> the episode finally comes where they find out you know, what he's been doing and he's about to be on the literal chopping block and in that episode, they kind of went a little bit into his, like you saw a little bit of his family and a little bit of his backstory. And by the end of that episode, I was like, no, don't do it, don't kill him. And in that moment, I was so stunned by the end of that episode because I was like something I was so, I was so certain about how I felt about this one person. And in 40 minutes, my mind completely changed. And then I thought, well, if, this medium can change people's minds about, change my mind about this one thing. It, it must have the power and ability to change people's minds about the identities that I hold and the communities I want to advocate for and the experiences that, that I had in my life. And so it was like in that moment, this kind of dormant passion for the arts and creativity and the purposefulness of what I wanted to do as a, as a professor kind of came together and it seems like filmmaking was it seemed like filmmaking was the merger of those two like i could use this to build these bridges of empathy and community and understanding through laughter and love and and, and joy and healing um through this medium and so in that that was the moment i went downstairs and said hey mom i think i want to be a filmmaker and she was like, are you sure? She'd never heard me speak like that before. Um, and I said, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. And that launched, that launched the journey to making movies with uh, with my siblings certainly being my first 
crew and talent. <laughs> that was how I knew I wanted to make movies. And you received a lot of accolades early on for your work. Uh, so I just wanted to list a few of your, your, your rewards and, and, and acknowledgements. Uh, you won first place in a student philanthropy video competition, a Woman of Distinction Award from the University of the Pacific, the Cinecat Best Director and Best Screenplay, the Dana and Albert Broccoli Foundation Scholarship at USC, official selection in the Sacramento International Film Festival, a Student Academy Award nominee from the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. What is it about your films that are connecting to the people in the industry? Oh, I think, you know, you never know because what's interesting about all of those places and spaces that my work has uh, allowed me to explore and, and, and be a part of. You meet so many different people who share what, how the work impacted them. And it's, it's different, you know, every time I've been surprised. But I think something that's the through line is um, feeling like there's something, there's a moment of empathy, I think. I think there's a moment where like, they feel so much for the character and it feels real. Like there's something that feels familiar, like it feels real because it feels familiar to them. And so I, I, I think that's what it is. And it's something that I don't even know. I don't think about, okay, what can make everyone connect to this thing? I just ask myself, what is the, what's the truth of this experience? Like, what is this really talking about? And I think the more specific I got and the more honest I got with what I was trying to tell about my own life and experience um, or whatever I was trying to um, communicate with the work, it just inherently truth connects with someone's truth. You know, I, I think like when you get to something that is truthful, people just see themselves, even if it doesn't look like them, they see themselves. So that's what I, I would say is probably that. Uh, it's about the themes and the human experience that connects mm -hmm. uh, the people to your work. Mm -hmm. Right. The University of Southern California is a very prestigious institution and, you know, a lot of top filmmakers have graduated from this uh, university. What is your personal reason for wanting to go to USC and what was the criteria for getting accepted into the university? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew that, um, like I said, I, in my hometown, Stockton, the university I went to was in Stockton, so it was a smaller private university. And um, even though I started learning things there, I just knew that there was a lot more for me to learn because I didn't realize film was what I wanted to do until later. So I knew, that I also love education. I was gonna be a professor. So for me, it was like, well, I know I need to learn more. I know I do very well in a, in a school environment, so I knew I wanted to go to um, graduate school and USC was on a list of maybe like 10 schools I, I was looking at. And um, I had just heard so much about USC. The professor that taught me at University Pacific was a graduate from USC, Patty McCarthy, who changed 
my life in so many different ways um, and as a creative. And so it just was like, okay, the people that I know who have, have been here, this is one of the routes that they've taken. So um, so I applied there and I had to make um, a short film and do a personal statement. Um, and my short film was with my brother and my mom as my cast and it was poorly lit and I did it on a camcorder and I had to have a, a letter of recommendation and I, I actually had the opportunity to talk with, speak with the person who reviewed my um, materials because it's a, a group and then it, you know, whittled down to individuals who see it, um, at least at that time. And I think as poorly produced <laughs> as that film was, they said that they could see, you know, what I was trying to say. And the letter of recommendation that came from Patty McCarthy, she knew so much about my voice and they could see a one-to-one -one of what the work was and what how she would speak about the work. And that um, spoke volumes to them, I think. And so it's different for every person, the why and how you, know, you get into an institution like that because it goes through so many applications, go through so many different hands. Um, but yeah, that's, it's kind of like, I also knew that grad school was going to be very expensive. And so I figured, well, if I'm going to be in this kind of debt, I'd rather do it with <laughs> one of the biggest, one of the greatest, you know, well-known institutions that there are. And I was, you know, blessed to get accepted into there. And yeah, very, very grateful I got to go there. Do you have any filmmakers that inspired you? or still inspires you? Yeah. Um, there are so many films, individual films for sure. When I think about a singular filmmaker, the first one that comes to mind is uh, Spike Jones. He did Her, he did um, Where the Wild Things Are, did um, Oh my gosh, I'm blanking at so many right now. But um, there's just so, even it, from his shorts, even to his features, um, following his career. And there's something about his work that is so emotionally truthful, but has like whimsy, a part of it too, that I love. So um, Spike Jones, Jones's work is, is something that's inspired me. Um, and certainly films, uh, some of the films that just, if I could put my name on it and say, I made this movie, I would be so happy. Like, um, Eve's Bayou is one of my favorite films. Crooklyn is one of my favorite films. Uh, Feast of the Southern Wild is one of my favorite films. Um, I love those films and the film, and, and I have so much appreciation and respect for the filmmakers that made them. What inspired you to create a career in both producing and writing? How do you balance both roles? Yeah, I, it's interesting because I do, I write and direct and produce all, all of those. And when I first started, I didn't know there was a difference between them. I just thought I have to make a movie. So I was doing 
every position. I was writing it, directing it. I was editing it, I guess producing it because I had to make it happen. Um, I was putting wardrobe together. You know, I was doing all these things. And um, it, it also differs when you're in television and film because producing in television is, is a little bit different with, than when you're a producer in, in film and directing in TV is different when you're directing in film. But all of those roles, all three of those roles, to me are of interest to me because those are positions where you really not, you not only create the vision for it, but those are the positions that, actu that actualize the vision and that steer the ship. There's so many other pieces and parts of the team that make it come to life. But those three, um, writing and directing and producing, it's like you've got the person who visioned it in there, mind and words and then the person is going to take those words and and protect the story by shepherding it and then you have the person who's like i know the resources and the people to pull this all together and it's a great position to be in if you have all of those different skills because you then know how to really bring the project and advocate for it and actualize it and so all of those roles are of interest to me it puts you in the position to see it all the way through from your mind to, to the screen. And when you are not in those positions, you have a little bit less control and a little bit less um, agency, I think, or input in, it, in it invites other people into kind of shape it and shift it in different ways. And that's the, that is a career that some people really enjoy. Like they just like a specific part of that process. I love it all the way through. <laughs> Of all the films you've created, which do you consider as your most personal? They're all personal. <laughs> I put myself in everything. But I think I would say Amelia's Closet is probably one of the most, most personal because it was such a journey figuring out the story for that film. And it was based on um, my own experience. And the way I even got to that story was, I was kind of having a writer's block, trying to figure out what story I wanted to tell for my thesis at USC. And I knew I wanted it to be based on stuff that I experienced. I had this kind of Christmas story. So I went back to Stockton and drove by my um, my old elementary school to kind of see how I would be inspired. And when I went back to my elementary school, I was surprised to have this really strong feeling of, um, there was this feeling of sadness that was a part of that because uh, it brought back these memories of, it brought back these memories of what it was like, <laughs> not feeling advocated for while in school and things like that. And it hit me so strongly that I was like, oh no, this is what I need to be writing about. This uncomfortable feeling, this really strong feeling, this is what I need to write about. And I went home and I sat in the room and I wrote out Amelia's Closet like, like that. And 
Um, and it helped that I had friends that were telling me, hey, there's something deeper here. And it came out. And so and it was, it was very, very personal because it was something that I was impacted by. My parents were impacted by. And it was my side of the story that I, at that time, I remember how old I was, eight or nine, somewhere around there, that it was my side of the story that at that age, I didn't have the space to say, just tell people from my point of view what I was experiencing. And I finally got to breathe life into that younger Halima to tell my story. It was very, very personal. Amelia's Closet is about a young girl who is being bullied by students in her school and she decides to retaliate by taking some of their personal belongings and hiding them in her closet. Um, and then uh, I believe her father is the one who actually exposes what she's doing and opens the closet and sees, um, you know, these personal belongings uh, belonging to someone else. Um, and it's a, a story about maybe her coming to terms about who she is um, and, you know, maybe looking for ways to empower herself and to improve on her self-esteem. Yeah, it's that is 100% what the story is about. And I thought, because it's interesting, sometimes I think the conversation is if you discover that a, a kid or someone is acting out in school, the question we're used to hearing is, well, what's going on at home? What's going on at home to make them feel that way? And I remember thinking, I, the place that made me feel small and made me feel not my best self, my worst self, it wasn't it was at school. And that's what I wanted to also show in that film was, you know, it's sometimes it's not the coal mine isn't at home. Sometimes these canaries are going into the coal mine of, of this space. And um, the people who are maybe we think right away, and maybe they even think they're being allies to the students in their in their classroom, they don't even realize that that they may be a part of the reason why these behaviors are coming out. And of course, I don't know. I don't know this at this age. It isn't until a little bit when I think about what was happening at that time and why and how it made me feel. Um, but the hope was also to engage not only a conversation with myself and the Amelia's in those spaces when they see the film to see themselves on the screen, but also maybe um, even parents and educators to see the film and, oh, do I have an Amelia in my class? And what are the ways I can support them? And what are the clues and indications that they might be dealing with something similar? How can I be of support you know, to them and, and supporting them to, be, to feel empowered in the right way and get empowered in the true right way? <clears throat> So how did the, uh, in your background and personal experiences influence the themes and messages in your work? Mm -hmm. The rule that I put for myself is if I'm telling a story, because usually when um, I'm telling a story or anyone's telling a story, oftentimes it's about themselves. At least that's the case for me. I'm telling a story about me. And if I look at the story and in the and in the story, 
the only character that needs to change is everyone else around the character instead of themselves, then I say to myself, I'm not being honest with myself. <laughs> I need to deep, dig deeper into whatever I'm trying to say. I need whatever lesson I was supposed to learn. That's There's something for me to take away. There's something for me to evolve as a person. And so whatever that thing is, that's what I push to put in the, the film. So certainly my experiences, the lessons that I've learned, I'm, I'm, I've learned and am continuously learning, I put in there. My experience is coming from a big family. My experience being uh, with my peer siblings, but also being an older uh, sibling and the responsibilities that come with, with, with that. Um, my experiences as uh, a as a a young woman, my experiences as a black woman, my experience navigating the many spaces that I do with the body that I inhabit, all of that goes into the work that I do, and every single thing that I do goes into that lens. I put that in everything. How did all your film work lead you to writing and directing Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur? Well, producing, not directing. Right. <laughs> I wish I was talented in it as an artist <laughs> to be able to, to direct. Our directors are so awesome. Um, my, How did my experiences lead me to be able to do that? You know, I think I, I consider myself really, really lucky and blessed in that there are a lot of people like when you get onto your first role as a television writer you're one of your biggest jobs is to be able to write in the voice of the show it's not necessarily just your specific voice but what's already kind of established and how do you continue to write in that voice and i feel very blessed and lucky that with moon girl particularly, it was a show that had the pieces there. I just related so much, relate so much to um, Lunella and being able to like breathe into the character and, and the world and the stuff that was you know already wonderfully established by the team before I had even gotten on. Um, to really contribute in that way and as a writer and then also being able to then contribute to other things as a, a producer as a part of the show. Um, I would say that for certainly for for um, in television writing and, and especially on uh, Moon Girl, I think also some of my other experiences like I um, after USC, I could not find a job in the industry to save my life. And the only person that would hire me is Charles, who was a manager at Joann's Fabrics. <laughs> and that's where I worked after film school. And while I was there, um, I knew I wanted to hone my writing skills. And being at a craft store that was... Uh, had so many different kinds of people who work there. So people go in there. I would look at this and go, oh my gosh, this is such a workplace comedy. Like this is a show 
And I started to kind of, I sat and, and, and started writing about it. And I wrote this pilot called, based on my experiences of struggling. And it was called The Art of Failure, working in a craft store and couldn't find a job. And, you know, I think those different things, like after I wrote that pilot, then I was a part of, um, I crossed paths with Samir Gardezi, who was doing a, a fellowship called Break the Room, where we did and developed a web series called East of La Brea. So then I got to do that and that went on to be produced and I did a number of different projects with Break the Room. And then from there, I knew Samir had also been in the Nickelodeon writing program. And that then inspired me to apply for that program. And I got into the Nick writing program, which there I learned so much about writing structure and just what it means to write in, in comedy. That experience really primed me to be able to write not only just for television, but also features and things like that. Like it just was really, a, it's a masterclass, I think in, in years time of how to do that. And so the tools that I got from that program, and of course, everything that preceded that allowed me to very quickly contribute in my first role at, at Moon Girl and, and the other places I got to write on um, to be able to, you know, move up the ranks because I had all of this experience. And same thing with filmmaking. And filmmaking, when you're a director, you are producing, you are thinking about budgets, you are thinking about how choices impact all these other departments. All of that, I think, primed me to be able to come into the television space with a producerial mind that it wasn't just about what I'm writing on the page, but I'm thinking about what I do and how it impacts other departments. And although it was a transition into animation, there are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities about how you have to think about producing the work, like reuse and which characters and character count and all of that stuff. So all of that experience from learning how to make a film with $500, learning how to write to certain constraints, learning how to collaborate with other writers. I'd even say learning how to collaborate with my eight other siblings, like all of that stuff, <laughs> all of those things, all of those things. You have siblings, learn how to communicate, practice those communication skills, right. those leadership skills, because all of that, you'll see it, it will manifest and you'll see it come to to uh, to life in the places that you work. They're they're really no no different. All of those skills transfer there because being filmmaking and and making for television content production it's a team sport. You know it's a team sport. <laughs> you get to <laughs> it is a team sport that requires care and collaboration, and so. Um, all of those skills, it's, it's some of those spaces, it was about honing the craft of writing and producing the technical, but a lot of those other experiences in my life also about those soft skills and how you connect with individuals, other people, how you care about what you do impacts, whether it's your audience or the person who's creating right next to you. And also, how do you collaborate with yourself? How are you connecting with with yourself throughout this process and being honest with yourself so that 
it shows in the work, you know? So every single thing I've done, every single thing I've done has led me to where I am right now, sitting in front of you and getting to speak to both of you. My God, you have eight siblings? I can't manage one. How do you eat your brain cells in your head? Oh my gosh. I, it's, okay, siblinghood is, it's a team sport, right? Like, it's a team sport. Everybody's got their strength and you flow and you move. My belief has always been that, um, this is going to be such a terrible comparison, but you know how they say when you experience pain, at a certain point, even if you're getting more pain, you stop feeling like it, there's only so much you'll actually be able to feel after that point. It doesn't matter what happens after that. I say after five siblings, you don't feel the difference. <laughs> like it's, there's so many people, so many people, at least to me as a sibling, my mom might beg to differ. She probably begs to differ. <laughs> but for me, it was like, yeah, you know who's going to eat up all the food. You know who's not going to go pull those weeds. You know who you're going to have to come up behind. You know who's going to leave a swig of orange juice in that container. You know. <laughs> and as the older sibling, my thought is, while they're doing whatever they, the younger ones are doing whatever they're doing, I'm thinking, okay, there's about a cup of orange juice left in this OJ. I have money. I If I want to go up the thing and go get a jug, I can go do that. So I'm not going to drink this orange juice because they can't go to the store by themselves to go get some OJ. So I'm going to let them have that and I'll go take care of myself. The younger sibling is like, leave the swing. I don't even think about that, you know. Yeah. But all of that, again, all of those experiences, that's all sprinkled in stuff that I've done, all, all of my work. And they are some of my, like, my biggest supporters. You know, like they are why I do what I do. They inspire every single thing that I do. All every single one of my siblings, from the one older older sister that I have to the youngest, every single one of them inspire the stories that I tell and inspire me to keep going. And are my biggest my biggest fans. Like so. And they say funny stuff to me all the time, like, put that in a script or do this, you know? So it's like, I know the brain cells that you feel you may be losing, they, yeah. they catch them and they give them back in other ways, at least in my case. So I wouldn't change it for the world. I have no idea when people say they only have one sibling, they're an only child. I'm like, what is that? What is that like? <laughs> You know, my morning routine is wake up, brush my teeth, lose a brain cell, which isn't hard to do, and go to school. But you get it back, right, by the end of the day? Yeah, usually. Okay, usually. usually. Sometimes, sometimes I'm just down a brain yeah. cell. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, Halima, I, I understand that story about the orange juice. So we have a running gag where we talk about butter cookies. We love butter cookies around here, right? And I, well, I love here. it more. Okay, I was about to, you know say it. I, I love them more than anybody else, but I, you know, and th that used to be the case that the butter cookies were just for me. No one ate my butter cookies. Then all of a sudden, you know, Keith tries one, 
His brother Meso tries one. And now I barely get one butter cookie out of the butter cookies that I buy. So here's what you have to do. You have to buy six packs so we each get two. No. And they're yeah. gone in two days. See that? It doesn't matter how many packs you buy, you know. <laughs> no. Wow. See, that is, I'm going to tell you, when you have multiple siblings, I'm going to tell you, it's not about buying more. It's about yeah. the art of hiding food. That is what happens. <laughs> I used to do that. I used to take like a bunch yeah. of snacks, put them in one of those Christmas cookie boxes, and hide them in my closet. <laughs> and I found it a year later. There's stale cookies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Stale Cheerios. Oh, wow. And a chili bar that's half past its expiration date. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and okay. I, I, I'm like, well, at least I ate yeah. most of it before right. it yeah. expired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you honestly, there is a famed, there's famed stories. So my oldest sister is the master, was the master of hiding food. Stuff would be out, like it'd be gone. My mom would buy something, it'd be gone, and then you'd see months later somehow she's walking down, walking around with a can of Sprite, walking around with. Rice Krispies and things. It's like, where did you get that? Oh, I found it. Well, let me tell you, there was one time we have to clean the house. Um, and my mom would buy honey buns. Those were our, I guess, our, our um, butter cookies. Honey buns. And they would go quick. And I remember one time, she it was this long stint that she didn't buy honey buns. And we had to clean the house. And I was cleaning on the top of the refrigerator. And there was a honey bun there moldy and old. And let me tell you what, what made me sad was I was like, somebody, somebody was so selfish, they hit this honey bun and it sacrificed its life. <laughs> no one got to enjoy it. That's how I felt. I was like, no one got to enjoy no. this honey bun and no one will because someone yeah. hit it and forgot they put it there. Yeah, exactly true. <laughs> it's true. That honey bun sacrificed its life for its country. Yes. <laughs> that is. May it rest in peace. That's an incredible story, and it's a true story. Should have been eaten. <laughs> that never happens with a butter cookie, because yeah. I find them. Yes, and no matter where I hide them, they find them. It's he can so hide them behind the vegetables. I still love uh, behind it, right where they wouldn't go. Right. <laughs> oh, that, that is a yeah. That is the yes. My brother yes. Maceo always with the orange juice. Like, we'll buy orange juice. I personally only drink the orange mango juice because, like, I'm fancy. I wake up and it's like a Saturday morning. Dad makes pancakes and bacon. And I'm like, where's the orange juice? We bought it yesterday. And Dad's like, it's gone. I go in the kitchen and I see an open bottle with orange juice spilled into the sink and the lid off. Yeah. And that my brother too. and my brother sitting next to it like <laughs> and sometimes I don't know. I guess if you have too much orange juice. Like it's like he snaps his fingers we'll, we'll just throw and it the out. orange juice <laughs> is like, gone. Yeah. Like no yeah. one needs this. No one needs it. <laughs> yeah. And he's the one who drinks the most of it. Like I can't get orange juice anymore. Well, we're we're trying. We're trying. That's why I drink water. Yeah, hey, it's probably better for you anyway, right? Hey, but at least he doesn't drink coffee. I still get my coffee. Yeah, well, not yet. He's not drinking coffee yet. <laughs> we got to make sure he never does so I can have something. It'll be your thing, your thing that you can spill down the sink. Yeah, and tea. I, I love tea. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Can you discuss the importance of representation and diversity in the entertainment industry? Diversity is so, it's important for so many reasons. And I think, I think not a lot of people understand. There's some people who understand the concept of it's important, but there's a lot of nuance, nuance as to why, because, um, and I think there's more conversation that needs to be had and understood about that. Of course, there's, you know, it, when you see something on TV, you see it in a movie or you see it in the books, it's like inherently telling you what's happening, right? Because there's so much going on in the world. There's so much history. And the thought is, well, if it made the cut to make it on screen or in a book, then it must be especially important. So what does that say when you open up a book, be it textbook or for leisure, and you put on your TV, and there is little to no representation. What does that say? It inherently says to whoever's consuming it that that is the level of importance that they have in the scheme of the world, in the scheme of history. That's the level of importance and significance and impact that they have and have had. And that does something to you when you are what's being reflected back to you is that you are not important and you haven't been important and you are insignificant you haven't made the difference i mean being able to see yourself reflected see some version some parts of you reflected and echo back to you in some level of importance i mean that made a difference as to how long it even took me to see that i could be uh, see myself in a creative space because I didn't see it around me. And so that's one reason why just even having it, I say it about on screen, I see it in text textbooks and in literature, it, it, in all the ways our world gets reflected back to us. Um, that's why it's important to have representation because it's it's not even just about it's not about, well, we just need more of this. It's about, you know, be truthful about how important all of these different communities and uh, are in the world and have been. Like, this is what that looks like. This is what that, con the, the body of that significance, and like, that's what that looks like. And I also think it's not just about just seeing yourself on screen. Because, yes, it's important for people to see themselves on screen. But I think it's important for people to see themselves as they see themselves on screen. And that's where the level of authenticity comes, right? Because I can put, for myself, I, I can put on the TV and see a, a young Black girl on screen, right? But if she's not like me, if she's not as I see myself, as I see myself as empowered, as I see myself as whatever that is, as a, a, a super genius or a, um, you know, as um, a significant role in my family, as a politician, as a whatever, right? The ways in which I see myself and think about myself and the way that I speak, the way that I carry myself, the way I interact with my friends and my siblings and my world, then it doesn't really mean anything. 
because what I have is someone else's representation with some semblance of my face, right? So I think that's why when it gets to, it's not just what you see on the screen or what you see on the book cover, but who is actually scribing the words and who is actually behind the scenes translating that experience so that it feels real, that I feel like I'm seeing myself. It's not just a, oh yeah, check. it's not a checkbox that we filled the visual quota, but it's the experiential quota as well, you know? And so, and so I take that very seriously. If I'm writing for a character who, even if they share some of the same identities as me, like I, my last short film, it, it was a couple, it was a, a, a black woman and a black male, and I collaborated with someone for the male's perspective because there are things about that experience that I, as a as a black woman, may not I I won't I don't know, and so I want whoever's watching it to feel like they see themselves as they see themselves, not just as I think they see themselves or the version of them that I'm creating or projecting. You know, like I want it to feel like they see something real, and whoever produced this was close to it. You know, you can't, you can, I think you can always feel that when it's real. So all of that to say, I think, you know, diversity and inclusion and representation, authentic representation that seeing yourself or that identity as an identity sees themselves as they would describe themselves and their experiences is incredibly important because then the people who are consuming consuming it know not only are they important and have always been important, not only have they been a part of this story of this world in a very significant, powerful way, so they themselves can feel empowered and see what's possible and know what they have been a part of, but also that they are not alone. And I'm not the only one. How scary is that to see someone with your face and living a life that, like, that you have, that's what I'm supposed to feel like? That's not what I feel like. Is something wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. We just got work we need to do to make sure you see yourself. All right. And can you tell us any details about your upcoming projects? Nothing incriminating, but, like, just, like, anything that's coming new. <laughs> it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, what I can say is that, um, you know, for myself, I'm excited to uh, continue to develop and, and work on projects. And for myself, my uh, the next thing that I'm really excited to do is write and direct my first feature-length film. Um, I've written feature-length films, but to direct my first feature-length film that, as you can imagine, will be very personal, uh, will be certainly uh, set in Stockton, California, will have lovely sibling stories. Um, and I'm excited to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a milestone that, of course, the every person that I've looked up to has, has gotten to do and it's exciting thinking of doing the first, it will be the first of many. So 
that's what you can have to look forward to from me, certainly. Um, is, Wait, when is it releasing? I still have to make it. <laughs> that's what I'm working on right now. So, Wait, have you cast people yet? In my mind. No, I think it's very, very early in pre-production. Very, very early. <laughs> this is very, very early. That's what it looks like when you um, hold all of those roles. <laughs> you if you need an actor, I'm ready to fly out to California once yeah, again. You're looking for an 11-year-old. There you go. Look. You could play one of your siblings. Oh, right tech, you can't cash. Come on, if you're serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, I. This has been such a joy and such a treat, and I, I've, uh, you know, I'm no stranger to doing family productions. So, <laughs> so I look forward to being able to collaborate in 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 some kind of way with with you all. So. Wow. Wow. Uh this has truly been an honor. Hey, Dad, yes. maybe you and Mom can play the parents. <laughs> I don't know. Eh, <laughs> I, I think that's, yeah. You know, like, I don't know, something. Oh, who knows? Who knows? Who I'm knows? sorry. I'm casting roles and I'm not yes, even well, part of the movie. It, it has to be written first, you know. <laughs> there, needs a, there needs to be a script before you start it, telling people exactly, who's going to exactly, play what. Exactly. <laughs> Remember what Halima said is collaboration. That's very important. You know, so they have to Wait until the writer writes, and then talk about the role and see if you're the right person. You, you for You can't role. be writing scripts if there's nothing to write. There you go. That's right. That's right. It starts with the writer. So. Right. This has been a pleasure, Halima. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Where can people find you? Oh, I am on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, also on LinkedIn. Um, if anyone wants to connect there too. And on all of those platforms, it's either it's my first and last name, so at Helena Lucas or LinkedIn Helena Lucas. Um, and I'm excited to connect and always build community. So please do. Right. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Where can people find us, Keith? Well, you know where to find us if you'd like to listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Our socials are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fathershed Galaxy. Website is fathersongalaxy.com. Our merch store is fathersongalaxy.myspreadshop.com. We got lots of nice stuff there. And our Patreon page is patreon.com slash fathersongalaxy. Check that out, too. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, Halima Lucas is an acclaimed filmmaker, uh, writer, and co-producer of Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. I'm so Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode. So until next time, take care. And we and will we'll see, see you again. again.